0: Morning. Uh, so today's Bible reading will be from the book of John, chapter 11, starting from verse 45 and stopping at verse 54. Uh, before I start, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We pray that the preaching will be clear and faithful to you and that we will have open hearts and willing hands to listen and to do your work. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So John 11:45 to 54. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing they asked? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to to a village named Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As uh, Alan has already uh, mentioned, uh, this is our last series, our last uh, talk in uh, John that we've looked at this uh, this year. It's been great, really, looking at uh, John's gospel together this year. I've really, really enjoyed it. We've looked at, it needs to come closer. Is that better? Does that need to go up more, Sam? Is that better? Cool. Um, cool. <clears throat> Yeah, it's been really great. We've spent the well, all of this year really looking at the first eleven chapters of of John's Gospel, and the remaining nine chapters left is really the last week uh, of Jesus' life as we get into the to the final Passover, and we'll look forward to continuing that at at, at some point. Well, let me tell you about Julius Caesar. He was born in hundred uh, BC, and he was instrumental in helping the Roman Republic uh, become the great Roman Empire. He was a military general, a politician, and was declared the dictator for life of the Roman Republic in February 44 BC. But this was short-lived. He had many, many enemies. And one month after becoming dictator, uh, the enemies, they conspired against him and they assassinated him. And while his enemies uh, celebrated in triumph of killing uh, Julius Caesar... Uh, their triumph, well, was short lived because Caesar's heir, Octavian, he avenged his death by beginning a civil war which lasted 10 or so years, and the assassins, well, they lost. And their triumph, well, it turned into a tragedy because Octavian uh, was led to have no political rivals or military rivals, and so he had this abundance of power. And so he began the great uh, Roman Empire. He was Augustus, the first uh, emperor of Rome. <clears throat> we can look at an event like that and be confused about how we should look at it. Do we look at this event as a great tragedy or as a triumph? And maybe it depends on, on who, how we look at it or from whose perspective we look at it because the same event could seem to be both a, a tragedy And a triumph at the same time. But what about the death of Jesus? How do we see the death of Jesus? Was it a tragedy or was it a triumph? And again, it may depend on who you ask. You see, Jesus did some pretty incredible things. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. Last week he saw him raise the dead. He was seen to be a good man. And yet others saw him as a political upstart, causing massive disruptions and fearing that he would cause an uprising. He was a political renegade who needed to be killed. He needed to be put away with so the status quo would not be affected. And today some of us might look at the death of Jesus and we may think, man, what a tragedy. He'd done so much good stuff and he was so young. Oh, what a tragedy. But see, when the Jews who killed him, who had their way, they feared the uprising he would cause, and so they killed him. And we see in verse 47 there uh, that the Sanhedrin uh, meeting uh, begins. Now, the Sanhedrin was the, the highest uh, level of authority among the Jewish people. Uh, they looked after all the things and all the affairs related to the Jewish people, political, judicial, religious, And they had been given this power by the Romans, that is the Roman Empire. But they were underneath Roman authority and under control. But see, they were given a fair bit of freedom and power and privilege over the Jewish people and over their affairs. And we see there in verse 45, have a look there, uh, why this meeting was called. So from verse 45... Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Well, we saw last week what Jesus had just done. He had raised the rotting corpse of Lazarus from the dead. What was dead is now alive. And, 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 and like we've seen throughout this book, what Jesus does will divide people while some will believe in him and put their trust. Others, they don't believe. And that some of those unbelieving, uh, they, they take this matter to the Pharisees and, and let them know what's happening. And so this, this meeting of the Sanhedrin, uh, begins because of Jesus. <clears throat> in the Sanhedrin, they're at a loss. Have a look there from verse 47. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. What are we accomplishing, they asked. What are we going to do about Jesus? And they're at a loss because everything they've tried, well, it hasn't worked. They've tried confronting Jesus hasn't worked. They've tried challenging and discrediting Jesus. Each one has failed. They haven't stopped Jesus performing these incredible signs. And they haven't stopped people believing in him. In fact, his popularity, as far as they're concerned, continues to grow. And so their fear, they, they fear that Jesus will rise up. And with this huge backing of all those people who believe, that somehow he will rebel against the Roman Empire. And so their fear we see there in verse 48 is that the Romans, they'll come in and they'll take away our temple and our nation. And so they fear being crushed by the Roman Empire, of being wiped out by this uprising that they think that Jesus will cause and bring about. And while they mention losing the the temple and the nation, central things to the identity of, of the Jews, I think what they're really concerned about, what they really fear of losing, is their political control and the power they have. You see, they have great privilege. They have immense power over the Jews and they fear losing that power. Because do notice, they don't deny what Jesus says. They don't deny that he's raised Lazarus from the dead, that he's given sight to the blind, that he has healed the man lame for 38 years who can now walk. They don't deny these things because they can't deny these things. Too many people have seen these amazing things. They can't deny they've happened. And despite these undeniable things, it doesn't cause them to reassess and go, what's going on with Jesus? Let's investigate Jesus a bit further. Jesus has been doing these amazing, surely God, he's been sent by God. No, 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 they don't do that. They do not reassess their view on Jesus because they don't want to lose their status. They do not want to lose their political power and control that they have. Because if they were to submit to Jesus and acknowledge that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, well, they would have to forfeit their power and control to Jesus. And they don't want to do that. What are we accomplishing, they ask? Well, Caiaphas, uh, leaning the Sanhedrin, he steps up to the plate and he gives his... Wisdom. Have a look there from verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas tells them, you know nothing at all. How how naive you are. You know nothing politically. Let me tell you what needs to happen politically. Let me give you my wisdom, he says. Politically, this is what's good for the common good. It is better that one man die rather than the whole nation. Now, if you've watched any spy movie or assassin movie, you know the plot, right? So Jason Bourne, for instance, he was like the former CIA agent who knew too much information, and their fear is he's going to bring down Treadstone. And so because they can't bring him in and, and bring him back under their wing, they want to kill him because, they say, to kill this one man will protect the lot, the rest of them. Kill one guy, protect the rest. But see, it's not just fiction uh, where this takes place. I was told about this guy recently, Jimma, Jimmy Hoffa. I'd never heard of him, but anyway, he disappeared in 1975. He was a an American Union leader uh who was involved in organised crime. And when his body disappeared, well they never found it. But they're certain that the mafia uh have something to, to do with it. And we may never know uh or uh how he died or why, but it seems that the people who ordered his death found it necessary to kill him, this one guy to protect the rest of them. And so as Caiaphas gives his wisdom and explains that it's better that one man dies, that is, that Jesus dies instead of the nation. And the thinking is, well, if Jesus is left untouched, well, the the Roman Empire will will come in and crush and destroy their nation because of this uprising they fear he will bring. And so killing Jesus, the, the one man will prevent the Romans coming and destroying them all. And so that is what they seek to do, as we see from verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And if we see Jesus' death as a necessity, as a necessary kill to maintain order among the Jews, then what a tragedy A man who had done so much good, died so young, could have done so much more. What a tragedy. But is that right? Is that right? What did Jesus say about his own death? Last week in in chapter 11 we saw that he went back to Judea despite knowing that the Jews wanted to kill him, that they wanted to stone him to death. That doesn't stop him going back into Judea. And in chapter 10, the passage of the the good shepherd, we see that Jesus willingly lays down his life for the sheep. We see this language again and again, willingly lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 17, one of these places, it says this, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. No one can take his life from him. He himself willingly and knowingly lays down his life for his sheep only to to raise it up again. And again in chapter 12, uh, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus knew that he was going to die. In fact, he even knew how he was going to die, being lifted up, raised up onto the cross. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who willingly and knowingly gives his life for his sheep, for his people to save them. And so while some may see his death as a tragedy, his death was anything but. His death was actually a triumph. Jesus' death was a triumph, and the first thing we'll see is it's actually part of God's plan. After Caiaphas gives his wisdom, uh, have a look there at verse uh, 51. After Caiaphas has spoken, verse 49, uh, 50, here in 51, uh, John takes over. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, that is, he's the high priest designated to be high priest that year, uh, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That is what he has just said in those previous verses. That is him prophesying that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation. Now, this doesn't mean that he's And when it says he's speak, not speaking on his own accord, it doesn't mean that he's just a mere puppet, that he's just some mouthpiece used by God, like we might see with, with Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament. No, no, no. Caiaphas spoke his considered, measured, calloused opinion in verse 50. He meant his evil, wicked view that it is better the one dies instead of the rest. But you see, as Caiaphas spoke, God was speaking too. But see, they weren't saying the same thing, were they? God intended to make his plans known through something greater than Caiaphas had in mind. Because it's always been God's plan. From the very beginning, before the creation of the world, that Jesus would die on behalf of the people. Now this might be a a bit of a tricky thing for us to really grapple with but I think it's really clear here. God uses the evil of others to achieve his good purposes. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin were wicked and evil in their plot and success in in killing Jesus. They are guilty of their rejection of killing God's Messiah. And yet God used that wicked act to bring about his good purposes. We see it in the book of Acts as, as Peter gives his first Christian sermon in chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter says this. I Actually on the screen, yeah. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, they are responsible for their wickedness in killing Jesus. Like we are of our rejection of Jesus. And yet it was God's deliberate plan. It didn't take God by surprise. He knew this would happen. And we see similar kind of examples of this back in the Genesis, the the opening book of the Bible, where where Joseph's brothers uh, wickedly try to kill him or then sell him off as a a slave. And yet God uses that wickedness to save God's people and and the Egyptians. And so at the end, as they're in Egypt, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Our God had a plan. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things, even the timing and cause of his own son's death. Nothing is done outside his control, and it, it is a great comfort to us to know this truth because we know the outcome. Yeah, Jesus died, but he rose to life. Death was defeated to save and rescue us. And so if God's in control of all things, how much more can we be comforted knowing that God's working through the difficulties that we face ourselves, the difficulties that we experience ourselves? We may experience such great evil against us whether in our workplaces, from our own family, we may experience great injustice. We may see great injustices in the world around us by evil people, by, by corrupt governments. But let's trust God through this, like Jesus, knowing that God's got it covered. He knows all, he sees all, he's in control. That that doesn't mean that we may not get hurt or, or pained or, or even die in the process of, of suffering in this way. We see Jesus' example there, don't we? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, just before he's crucified, he's in pain, he's in anguish, knowing what's about to come before him. And, and Jesus dies. And so while great evil, <clears throat> injustice, suffering may be done against us, We know the outcome. Jesus rose from the grave and will raise us up with him and will bring us into his eternal glory. God is in control of all things. Well, the second thing uh, we notice uh, that makes Jesus' death a triumph uh, is that Jesus dies... So we won't. And a really uh, important theological concept we come up with here is this word that I... Anyway, this phrase, I wasn't too sure if I should say this, but I'm going to say it, so let me uh, put your theology caps on. But I think this is a really important phrase that I uh, think is helpful for us. And the phrase is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, the reason why it's such a, a big and important one is because it shows us what Jesus' death achieves for us and why his death is such a triumph for us today. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, That first part, penal, that is, it refers to a penalty. Have a look again at Caiaphas' words from verse 50. It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now the word penalty, uh, the idea of penalty comes from that word perish. Now the idea of, of perishing is is, uh, is not a popular in, in our society today. Just look at the backlash that Israel Folau has received and, and those who support him publicly. But to perish and to face God's judgment, being separated from God for our rebellion against him has been from the Bible almost since the very beginning. Back back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decide to ignore and rebel God's good word, well, death entered the world. And they were penalized and judged and separated from God. And that continues today. People are judged and penalized as they rebel and reject the God who made them, who sustains them and gives them all things. And despite all that goodness that God has given each one of us, we, all of us, reject God. But as we see, the wages of sin is death, and to perish is the consequence of sin. We deserve that penalty to be perished for the way that we treat God. And yet Jesus dies so that we don't have to. And so that second part of that penal substitutionary atonement is that there's a penalty for sin, but Jesus takes our place. He is our substitute. Jesus takes our punishment, our penalty in our place. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the the Women's uh, Soccer World Cup is on at the moment. Uh, Yesterday, the favourites to win, the Americans... Uh, they beat uh, France, the home nation. Sorry, Jono. Uh, but like uh, most games, uh, in the middle of the game sometime, a player comes off the pitch. And what I like about soccer is, uh, in this kind of idea is that they don't come back on. They, they come off and they rest. They, they don't come back on. They take the other person's place. That is what a substitute does. Jesus became our substitute. He takes the punishment, the penalty that we deserve in our place. Verse 50 says, he dies for, but it might be better to think, uh, verse 50, he dies on behalf of the people so they won't perish. He dies so we don't. And this concept isn't new, we've seen it all through the Old Testament, and it's this idea of of atonement. We see in the the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where an animal dies, an animal perishes on behalf of a person. Uh, We see it all through the Old Testament, but as as one example uh, from Leviticus uh, 16, it's up on the screen, Uh, he, that is the, the high priest, shall slaughter the goat... For the sin offering for the people, that is, the goat dies in place of the people. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. You see, God provides atonement, a way that the people can deal with their sin. An animal dies in place of the person. But you see, that sacrifice never lasted. It needed to happen again and again and again and again because it wasn't like for like, but Jesus, he dies once for all. For Christ also suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Jesus dies in our place, takes the punishment for us so that we can find forgiveness and life in him. And just like we saw last week as Jesus raised Lazarus, the rotting corpse from the grave, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in him will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in him will never die. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. And Jesus too was raised to life defeating death, reigning over all things now. And he promises to raise us up too on that great resurrection day when he returns and to bring us into glory with him. Well, back in April uh, this year, another awful news headline you would have seen Uh, was that another uh, terrible, terrible shooting took place in America in a school. It is so sad because we just seem seem to see it happening so, so often. And I wonder if you saw or know this guy, Riley Howe. Uh, Riley, he charged the gunman, he fought him, and he helped countless lives as a result by disarming the man and giving the police time to kind of come and get him. But in the process, he died. He lost his life, protecting many of his fellow students. And many of these students were saved because of Riley. And they can say of Riley when they grow up, they live because he died. That They can tell their grandchildren, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Riley, if he hadn't died to save us. How do you see the death of Jesus? We can look at it humanly and think, well, what a tragedy, hey? He had so much to give, he was so young, he could have done so much more, what a tragedy. Or we can look at it from God's perspective, Their plot and plan was pure evil, but it achieved God's good purpose and he provided mercy and grace and eternal life to those who believe. You see, God doesn't want people to perish, but for people to be raised to life. And when Jesus returns and ushers in the great resurrection day, when all will rise from the dead on that great day, a great multitude, an uncountable number of people from every tribe and nation and people and language, they will say, we live because Jesus died. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Jesus and he hadn't died for us. How do you see the death of Jesus? The way is open. The price has been paid. If only we would accept it in belief. Let's pray. Father God Almighty, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> we thank you so much that He died so that we don't. He took our punishment. He took our place. So that sin could be dealt with and punished. But he did that, that we would not perish, but live. Thank you for the confidence we have in that, knowing that Jesus died and rose to life and reigns in in, in heaven in glory now. And so, Father, we long for that day when He will return and bring us to that wonderful day in glory where we can reign with Him too. Father, we do pray, though, as we wait for that day, you would so help us live in light of that day, regardless of of the evil that we may experience or the injustice or the suffering, because we know the outcome. We thank you again for our risen Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.